My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. Hello and welcome to Talking Radical Radio, where we bring you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give participants in a wide range of social change work a chance to take a longer view as they talk about what they do, how they do it, and why they do it. On this week's show, I will be speaking with Jennifer West and Catherine Abray. As stores of easily accessible fossil fuels have been depleted by the rapacious engine that is capitalism, we have not entered the realm of absolute shortages that was once expected. Rather, higher prices have made it more economically feasible to exploit fossil fuel deposits that are both more expensive and considerably more environmentally destructive to extract than conventional reserves. While Canada's most massive contribution to this process is the Alberta tar sands, the version that is most likely to show up in smaller sites throughout the country is hydraulic fracturing or fracking. Novel, relatively unstudied, and fraught with risks, this process has been subject to noisy resistance around the world. And that includes Nova Scotia, where a coalition of larger established environmental organizations and grassroots groups in affected and potentially affected communities has come together to demand a 10-year moratorium on fracking in the province, to do extensive education work both with the public and with public officials, and to support local organizing on the ground. West and Abray talk with me about fracking and about the Nova Scotia Fracking Resource and Action Coalition, or NOFRAC. I spoke with them by, respectively, Skype from Halifax and Skype to phone from rural Nova Scotia. My name is Jennifer West, and I'm the Geoscience Coordinator at the Ecology Action Centre. I have a Master's in Earth Science, and I came to the EAC to launch a groundwater monitoring program called Groundswell, which is community-based groundwater monitoring. And over the years that I was developing and implementing that project, I became more involved in fracking in Nova Scotia and in the Kennecook area, which is where fracking took place in 2007. I'm Catherine Abreu. I'm the Energy Coordinator at the Ecology Action Centre. The Ecology Action Center is Nova Scotia's longest-standing non-profit environmental advocacy organization. It's been around for 42 years. We have seven action areas that we focus on, energy being one of them, coastal issues and groundwater issues being another. I manage and design all of our energy and climate change-related campaigns. I have a background in environmental policy and environmental sciences. I really come at the issue of fracking from how it fits into our provinces and our region's overall energy context. I spend a lot of my time encouraging Nova Scotia and the other Atlantic provinces to invest in energy efficiency and to develop our domestic renewable energy resources. And from my perspective, fracking is not only a huge risk to our water and our communities, but also a big step backward in terms of the kinds of transitions that we need to be seeing in our energy and electricity sectors. When fracking first started to be a more noticeable issue in Nova Scotia, Catherine and I started a coalition initially through the Nova Scotia Environment Network, and she brought her energy and policy expertise, and I brought more of a geoscience and groundwater expertise. And we were able to launch this coalition, and it's been ongoing and active since 2010, and it grew pretty quickly this year. We almost have 200 members across the province. 
Fracking is a new way of getting oil and gas out of the ground. In the past, the oil and gas industry has targeted what we call conventional resources, and these are more like the low-hanging fruit. So it's a concentrated pocket of oil or gas in the subsurface in a porous rock formation. Right now, we're finding that most of those easy-to-get, economical, conventional resources are pretty much depleted, and we're looking for the more difficult-to-find conventional resources, and we're also turning to unconventional resources. So the unconventional oil and gas are things like shale gas, and these are oil and gas that are trapped in tight formations. So they could be in a rock formation called shale, or it could be in a tight sandstone, but the porous nature of the rock is a lot less. So what needs to happen is you need to drill into that formation, and you need to drill along the formation. So one of the new aspects of this resource is that you do have to drill vertically down into the ground, and when you reach the formation rock, you need to drill through the formation rock. So it's almost like you have to turn and drill through formation as if you're going through the icing layer of a layer cake. So you have to stay within that icing layer. The next thing that's important about fracking is in order to free up and release that organic matter, the oil or the gas, you need to inject a lot of pressure into it. So what the industry does is they mix a combination of water and sand, and that mixture is generally 98 to 99 percent of the mixture. And then they add to that mixture, about 2% of the total mixture is a combination of chemicals. And the chemicals are essentially a secret sauce that improves the amount of oil and gas that comes out of that formation. So depending on the rock, depending on the location and the depth, depending on the company, they'll use a different mixture of chemicals. So between the different rock formation, the horizontal drilling, and this high-pressure fluid, It's a very different type of resource than what we've targeted in the past for our oil and gas. The issues with fracking are that it requires a lot of water from the surface, so often it's water removed from surface uh, resources like lakes and streams. Sometimes it's removed from groundwater. It requires a lot of changes to the community, so a lot of infrastructure. You need to clear the space for the pads. You need to add roads. You need to have a lot of infrastructure available at the surface to support these operations. When the oil and gas and the fluid comes back up, you need to have it in ponds. And after the oil and gas is separated from the wastewater, you're left with this wastewater that is very problematic. It's very difficult to treat because it's difficult to test accurately and find out exactly what is in the wastewater in order to determine the best way to treat it. And often treating it is very difficult or impossible because of the different natural and introduced contaminants in this wastewater. In terms of releasing it, it's very difficult. One of the ways that it's released is through re-injecting it into the ground, into a porous or into a pocket of space beneath the ground. And we don't feel that any of the ways to deal with the wastewater in this industry are responsible ways of dealing with the wastewater. Fracking is very new. These techniques associated with unconventional resources are only about 10 years old. And we have seen a lot of environmental and health impacts associated with fracking. Because it's a very new practice, We're only really seeing some peer-reviewed scientific studies come out in the past year or two. One of the most well-respected studies from Theo Colburn, 
And she has really studied the impact of the fracking fluids and the wastewater and the air quality on the endocrine system. So they're starting to produce scientific and health studies that show that there are serious effects from the decreased air quality in these areas caused by the hundreds or thousands of truck traffic that comes to the pads to support the drilling and also from the flaring. Air quality is a major concern. The groundwater is very difficult to really pinpoint where contamination comes from, and it's difficult to know what to test for in terms of finding cause and effect from the fracking fluid. It's difficult to know exactly what is in the fluid because a lot of jurisdictions don't have the requirements to share the chemicals that are in their fluid. So to find out why people are getting sick has been really difficult in some of these areas. I would add to that that traditionally a lot of concern has revolved around the drilling process itself and vulnerabilities within that process. But what we're realizing quite recently is that actually a lot of the health impacts from fracking happen on the surface. So they come from these tailing ponds that are left untreated and can quite easily contaminate surrounding groundwater. They come from flaring of the natural gas from the wells, which generally releases a great amount of methane, and methane is a far more potent greenhouse gas and carbon dioxide. And they come from the huge industrial inputs that hydraulic fracturing requires, and that's the large amount of truck traffic that Jen was talking about. What we're seeing is fields of wells that turn what was once often a pastoral landscape into this huge industrial landscape in the matter of a couple of years. And that is quite a startling transition for the majority of areas that have fracking going on. When I started at the Ecology Action Center, I joined the Nova Scotia Environment Network Water Caucus. And there were starting to be some discussions and some confusion about what is fracking and has it been done in Nova Scotia? So I offered to do some research and provide a little bit of an update to this group. And we formed a working group from that water caucus, and the working group developed into its own provincial coalition. The coalition in 2011 started a freedom of information and protection of privacy application to find out about the fracking that had happened in Nova Scotia. And that was our first real project. And it turned into kind of an epic two-year research project for our volunteers and it resulted in a report called Out of Control, Nova Scotia's Experience with Fracking for Shale Gas. We really feel that that report is the most thorough documentation that the public has access to to learn about the fracking that happened based on these Freedom of Information documents. So that report was released this year, but in 2011 we also felt really strongly that there had to be an event, some kind of information sharing for the public and for community groups and for municipal governments. So we decided to host in December a conference on fracking in Nova Scotia. And we invited Jessica Ernst from Rosebud, Alberta, who is involved in an ongoing legal dispute with Encana for the contamination of her drinking water. And we also invited Tony Ingrafia from Cornell University. And he attended the conference and gave a wonderful presentation. And more than 200 people attended this conference and the public event in Halifax we really feel that NOFRAC has been doing some really fantastic work in the province to help community groups and citizens in potential fracking areas and also to take policy concerns that we have in Nova Scotia 
to the Department of Energy and the Department of Environment. And Kat and I have both met several times with these departments and with the Premier's office to talk about energy policy relating to hydraulic fracturing. The idea to form NOFRAC really came out of the sense that there was a huge amount of passion within communities that were just learning about hydraulic fracturing to defend their water. There is this instinctual desire that swells up in people when they perceive a threat to their water system. And so Jen and I really perceived that passion and were hearing from a variety of different communities that folks were starting to get engaged and wondering what information was available and how they might be able to coordinate actions and to defend themselves against this growing threat. And so we wanted to figure out a way to bring these different voices together and to provide whatever logistical support we might be able to in organizing incidents at the information sharing and higher level policy conversation with government and decision makers. And at this point, NOFRAC is a thriving network of grassroots local initiatives that can come together at the provincial and regional level to share the lessons that they've learned and kind of share inspiration as to act as one voice. I think, too, a major accomplishment in NOFRAC this year was the identification of a big high-level act, and that happened in the lead-up to a provincial election that we had in Nova Scotia this fall. That ask is for a 10-year moratorium on fracking in the province. Maybe you can talk a little bit more about that, Jen. The members of NOFRAC come from various backgrounds, and it was really difficult for us to come to an agreement on a specific ask, but we did eventually settle on the goal of a 10-year moratorium with an associated review period on fracking. There is a review going on with a loose moratorium in the province right now, and the review has been improved from the initial internal technical review of fracking to a more independent-led review of fracking using a panel of experts and with some input from the public as well. But the idea of a 10-year ban we think is really important because it is such a new industry, a new method that we need that time to really look at other jurisdictions that are more advanced with fracking. And we need to know how it has affected their environment, their landscapes, their communities, their municipal governments. We want to take a step back and see how it's going in other areas before we jump into it. We really hope that the government will recognize through its review process that's going on now that we do need more time, that it is such a complex issue that a six-month review of fracking might not be all that is required. Paint me a bit of a picture of the membership of NOFRAC. There are a few levels of members at NOFRAC. In Nova Scotia, we have several active national environmental and social justice organizations, and they are active members in the steering committee of NOFRAC. We have the Ecology Action Centre, but also Sierra Club Atlantic and the Council of Canadians. So we have some national and regional representation on the steering committee. We also have leaders in communities where fracking has happened or is potentially going to happen. So we have some strong leaders from the North Shore area from the Tatamagosh-Picto River John area, where there's a large block of exploration set aside for one company called St. Brendan's Exploration. So there's a very active community there, and we have some members on the steering committee who are representing those groups. And we also have a group that is the East Hance Fracking Opposition Group, EFOG. I think there are 20 people in the Kennecook and Knoll area, which is a very small community, 
where fracking took place. And they're starting to mobilize and they've been really active and are now getting some grants to do public presentations in that area. And several members of that group are part of NOFRAC. So we do have members that are liaisons between local groups and the larger regional and provincial organizations. And we also have members who are just citizens not associated with individual groups. It can often be a challenge to bring lots of people, lots of groups together, particularly if they're different kinds of groups. Tell me a bit about the process that the coalition uses to coordinate things, to work together, that kind of thing. Well, that's a really good point. About a year ago, we needed a a change in the governance model at NOFRAC. So the two things that happened were we struck a steering committee and we invited some of the most active members to join the steering committee and we also opened it up to all members to become more active in the organization as a steering committee member. The first thing we did was start talking about the roles and responsibilities of a steering committee and how each of us would participate effectively and meaningfully in that steering committee. And while that conversation was happening, we also felt it necessary to have a strategic planning meeting for NOFRAC. So we invited all members in January of 2012 to come together and talk about what the direction should be for NOFRAC. We met and there was about 20 people who spent the day being led by a moderator to really determine what is the purpose of NOFRAC and what is it that we want to work on. And we set out about 10 different goals and priorities for us to focus on. So we were able to gather members and steering committee members together to really focus on what is it that we want to do. And from that point on, we've really kept an open communication between the steering committee and the rest of the members, but the steering committee feels that we have enough feedback to work on the topics and the issues that the members feel are important. The steering committee meets every two weeks and we have a conference call. We set up the agenda the week before and we determine the best time for everybody to meet so that as many people as possible can join. And most of the time, everybody is able to attend. So we have really good attendance at these meetings We go through the agenda really carefully. We're really respectful and patient as we go through the topics. We've really become a a really cohesive, effective group because we've been together for several years now. Tell me a bit more, and to the extent that you know, because I realize it's not something that you're necessarily directly involved in, about some of the things that are happening in the groups based directly in the affected communities or potentially affected communities. What sort of things are they doing locally around these issues? Sure. So I know that the East Hance Group, the East Hance Group actually was formed after we launched the report, which talked about fracking in their community. We launched that report in their community, and we had almost 100 people come out to that launch of the report. Shortly afterward, the East Hance Group formed because they were so concerned about what they read in our report. That group is having movie nights and is having discussion nights and is being really active in community events. They had a table at the summer fair in that area. They're sharing pamphlets. They're sharing the report. They're talking to people. They're getting people to understand and talk about this issue and know more about it and know that it's not something that would benefit their community. So that community has been really fantastic to see such a small community quickly engage a strong group of people to teach their neighbors and their families and friends about this issue. The other area would be the North Shore area. They have a very engaged, environmentally conscious group of citizens through several existing organizations there. 
Responsible Energy Antigonish is a group in the Antigonish area. They're very concerned about more responsible energy alternatives, and they've definitely jumped on board and have been doing similar actions in the Antigonish area as the East Hans area. So movies, discussions, pamphlets, bumper stickers. I think the red bumper stickers really originated from the groups on the North Shore. We have no fracking way bumper stickers that are quite popular. There's a Tatamagush Center and there's a local pub. It's a community-owned pub. I think it's closed now, but it really tried to have regular community events that targeted local issues and regional issues. And they had several presentations and workshops on fracking. So there's been a lot of volunteers and volunteer actions that have really helped neighbors tell neighbors about what this could do to their property, their community, their beaches, their lakes and rivers. It's kind of flourished on its own in some way, and we've just been, you know, nudging them sometimes, or they come and ask us for some more materials, or it's been a very collaborative evolution of this two levels, this level of the independent grassroots groups at the local level and then the provincial coalition at the, at the other level. What other things has the coalition level done to engage the broader public in some of these conversations? I think enough people have heard NoFrat give sound bites on the news or they've seen op-eds that we've done in the paper that we don't reach out quite as much as we did in the beginning and people are reaching out to us. They want us to come and speak to their women's group at the library. They want us to come and speak to a science class in a school. They want us to bring the information that we have about fracking in Nova Scotia to groups that already exist and have concerns about environment or health. So I would say our group is given a hundred, at least a hundred presentations. I know from my own experience that there's a potential for having different approaches, different political sensibilities between urban areas and more rural areas. Is that something that you have noticed in trying to bring groups from different parts of the province together? Yeah, the student committee is a nice mix of people from the Halifax area and from the rural areas in Nova Scotia. And definitely we have an urban-centric idea sometimes about some issues and how to deal with some issues in the media or with decision makers. And the rural members of the steering committee definitely keep us on track to make sure that we always address things in a way that benefits not only the urban population, but the rural population as well. So we do try to keep an eye on the urban and the rural divide, if you want to call it that and and make sure that we're addressing everybody as equally as we can. I feel as though the issue of fracking has been something that's really united folks across the province. There is an equal level of concern and outrage and desire to engage on this issue in communities, both rural and urban in Nova Scotia. And I would see fracking as an issue that breaks down that divide not only between rural and urban, but also between Indigenous and non-Indigenous communities. We've seen that happen quite a lot over the fracking issue. There's a lot of allied building happening in Nova Scotia and the other maritime provinces around this issue, and that's something that's quite beautiful and inspiring to watch. Tell me more about the coalition's engagement with First Nations communities. I know that we have an ongoing dialogue with leaders in our First Nations communities in Nova Scotia, and Mm -hmm. pretty regularly First Nations elders are representing their communities at the kinds of events that we hold and at rallies that we might speak at. Probably one of the more contemporary examples of ally building between Indigenous and non-Indigenous communities is not necessarily coming from NOFAC, but comes out of the Elsa Buchta community in New Brunswick, where there's been an ongoing blockade against a hydraulic fracturing shale gas developer. 
called Swin Resources. That blockade has been going on for a couple of months now and has gotten quite heated and involves the First Nations community of Elsa Booktook asserting claims to untreated land and really enforcing their rights with the help of non-Indigenous allies. That got kick-started by this blockade against hydraulic fracturing in the community. If I could add to that, I think in Nova Scotia, Idle No More and the anti-fracking movement, they were often combined and you would often see at Idle No More protests and actions, signs and information about banning fracking in Nova Scotia. There's also been definitely the Elsa Book Took activity has caused even more communication and some of the no-frack fundraising campaigns and the the, um, grassroots groups in NOFRAC, so there's a recently formed Halifax group, has really focused on providing information to the public on fracking and regular protests, but also fundraising to support the Elsa Booktook communities in their legal battles. So there are several ways that we've been collaborating at, at various levels with the Indigenous community here. What's your sense of the kinds of responses that you're getting from policymakers both to the information that you're presenting, but also to that demand for the moratorium? Well, I've been really encouraged in the past year with my meetings with ministers and staff researchers at the provincial level and with the premier's office that they've been very receptive to the quantity and quality of information that we bring to their attention. I do feel that there is, as Catherine was saying, there is this primitive fear that something will happen to our waters. And I think as human beings, you can't ignore that. When you're presented with information about the health impacts and cancer rates near well pads and asthma rates, and you can't dismiss that kind of evidence. And I've been really satisfied that we've gotten those messages and, and that information through to the right people. I do see the review panel in Nova Scotia as a real opportunity for us to continue that momentum toward a long-term moratorium or a ban on fracking. And I'm, I'm really looking forward to seeing how the panel is struck and who is on the panel and how things proceed with that review. What are some of the key things that NOFRAC is going to be doing over the next six months or a year? Well, we've definitely been really involved in the provincial review. They have launched this review and this is the game that they want to play. So we're going to play it. And we've submitted oh, at least 20 names to the review as nominations for the panel. So we feel that we have a lot of potential people who could represent issues of public health and municipal government and water issues and First Nations. We feel that we have presented them with lots of opportunities to create a panel that is very broad and informed about a real wide scope of issues. So that's what we've been working on for the past month. Now we have to wait to see what the panel looks like. And while we wait for that, we're definitely focusing on providing resources to the panel. So we have our steering committee and also volunteers from across the province who are providing resources. We're sending in peer-reviewed reports, news articles, pamphlets, anything that we can find so that the panel has as much information as is available for them to make an informed decision about this industry. You have been listening to my interview with Jennifer West and Catherine Abray of the Nova Scotia Fracking Resource and Action Coalition, or NOFRAC. To learn more about their work, go to nofrac.wordpress.com. That's N-O-F-R-A-C dot wordpress.com. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, 
or to make suggestions about topics for future shows, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link marked radio. That's talkingradical.ca. I'm your host, Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Sudbury, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists, Gender and Sexuality, and Resisting the State, both from Fernwood Publishing. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week.